from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today's show goes to the dogs and the cats as I talk to Wayne Paselli, CEO is the of the Humane Society of the United States. The 10 million member Humane Society of the United States, the nation's largest animal advocacy group. He is an active speaker, blogger, and author with his most recent book just out, The Bond, Our Kinship with Animals, Our Call to Defend Them, a New York Times bestseller its first week. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Wayne. Doug, glad to be with you. All right, well, I'm curious about your background. Yes. You have a bachelor's in history and studies in the environment, and at age 23, you were appointed the executive director of the Fund for Animals. It's a big jump. How did you go from history and studies in the environment to working at the, the executive director of the Fund for Animals? Well, I always loved animals, and not surprisingly, given that I've written a book called The Bond, and I started an animal advocacy group when I was in college in Connecticut. And I was actually going to go to law school, but then right after, a few animal organizations had kind of followed some of my work, and one of them offered me a job writing. So I actually did a year's worth of writing uh, for a magazine in the field. And then uh, Cleveland Amory, who was a legendary advocate for animals and a very noted author himself, kind of took uh, interest in some of my work and I guess some of my potential. And he, uh, he offered me a job that was kind of beyond my uh, experience level for sure. But I, uh, I worked hard at it and I worked there for five and a half years before okay. I uh, moved on to uh, the Humane Society of the United States. What did you learn in that job since this is writer's talk? And you, so, I mean, there's a lot of writing in history, but what were some of the things that stay with you from this day about having to do that year of writing or deciding to do that year of writing and then moving into another community? Well, you know, history, of course, you know, does, does uh, acquaint you with a lot of, you know, fabulous nonfiction work, historical work, and I was really drawn to that. And then writing for a magazine, I was doing news reporting, I was doing feature-length stuff, I was doing book reviews, so it just kind of enhanced my interest in that. And then, of course, it was a narrower gambit of issues, given that I was talking mainly about animal welfare issues and the human interface with, um, with, uh, with animals. But then I had this wonderful experience with Cleveland Amory. He wrote a bunch of best-selling books. He was a social historian. He wrote a book called The Proper Bostonians, another called Who Killed Society. But then he wrote a best-selling book about him and his cat, which was a tremendously entertaining, funny, literate book uh, called The Cat Who Came for Christmas. So it sounds like a very soft title, but it was a number one New York Times bestseller. And, you know, I talked to Cleveland about his own craft and how he thought about uh, books and what sort of process he engaged in writing a book and kind of all you know stuck with me and I knew eventually one day I was going to turn my attention to uh, to a book and his uh, own kind of teaching was really important to me. Okay. So now you've turned to this book and, and maybe like you said it's part of it is from that experience of finding about the uh, we said the cat who came for Christmas. Yes right. Tell me about this book. Uh, you've got a lot of things that you're on your plate as the president and CEO. How did you have time to write it? Well, I knew that would be one of my greatest challenges. I mean, writing a book is a difficult task in the, in the best of circumstances. I and mean, if you have all the time in the world, it's still tough. But I had this additional confounding element that my job is all-consuming. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're a 10 million member organization, as you say. We've got a $150 million budget. I've got 700 staff. I'm deeply engaged in battling on these issues that we mm-hmm. focus on and trying to spread the word. So I actually have a friend, uh, Matthew Scully, who wrote a book called Dominion, 
and his book was one of the most critically acclaimed books in the uh, field of animal welfare. Matthew uh, was a speechwriter for uh, President Bush and actually wrote um, his book during the campaign, that the 2000 campaign, plus uh, sometime into the first Bush administration. And he got up at four every morning and wrote from four to eight and then did his job speechwriting, whether for the campaign or for the president. So I thought, well, if he could do that, then I could do that. So I, It's a 4 a.m. rise time for you. 4 a.m. rise time when the phone is not ringing, when the, when the email is not flowing in, and I could concentrate. And then I you know, would write for two or three or four hours or research or do all the things you, you must do in a book. And then I would do my work during the day at, at HSUS. And then sometimes at night, I would turn to it at 8 or 9 o'clock and then I would start that process all over again. Okay. So how long did that process take? How long are you getting up at four? Well, you know, the book proposal took me eight months because I was really trying to frame this issue. I mean, I am a guy drawn to the big picture. I mean, this is not just kind of a sympathetic story about a, a boy and his dog. This is a much bigger, richer, fuller treatment, not to diminish those other works about a boy and his dog in any way. But I, uh, I decided that I wanted to, to take this very expansive view so it took me eight months to do the book proposal. And then I went to New York, I had an agent, I met with all the big publishing houses and they all bid on the book. And eventually I settled with William Morrow an imprint of HarperCollins. And once I signed that, that dotted line, I had one year. So I was just nose to the grindstone. I was every single day, I was devoting time to the book as long as I could. I mean, I was traveling a lot, I was writing on planes, I was writing in airports. I have the ability to compartmentalize. So there's a lot of tumult around me. I can still concentrate. And then, um, you know, I just have a fabulous staff. You know, I could consult doctors and wildlife biologists and others on our staff if I had questions. Mm -hmm. uh, they helped me with some of the research uh, elements of this, getting me papers or information. And that was, uh, that was a great benefit to the whole process. Yeah, guys, I noticed there's a lot of footnotes in this book, a surprisingly large number of footnotes. Also, you have an excellent index. I gotta say, hooray for the index because it allows you to, you know, to go back and forth and, and yeah. like I did, figure, you know, look up some interesting aspects that I wanted to talk to you about. So that's how you you need a research staff is what you're getting at. Well, I, I I had I had, and I'm not sure you need it. And I really felt like I wanted to just tie every loose end together with mm -hmm. this book and the work that we do, tremendously fulfilling. I think very popular in America we do have our share of critics. And I wanted to make this bulletproof. So, I mean, I did, uh, I read a gazillion books, it seemed like, and I did a lot of research. Plus, I've just had my two decades worth of immersion in this field. I mean, I was so intimately familiar. And I used, you know, narrative devices to try to illuminate these issues. I mean, this is not just a compendium of facts. I put myself in the middle of these stories in order to create a story and a narrative mm -hmm. so it's interesting and engaging to the reader. But at the end of the process, I wanted to make sure that I had all the facts in line. So I, I asked my staff to review it, uh, whether the program experts in wildlife or companion animals or farm animals. And then our research staff, you know, they gave me papers and others to make sure that I was, you know, hitting it right on point in all these details. When you do research, a lot of times you end up with things you didn't really expect. Tell me about moments like that for you in here where you come up upon something you th think, I thought I knew this, but there's a different take on it, and this is going to cause me trouble in writing it or in, in my conceptualization. How often did that happen? 
You know, I was so familiar with the set of topics and, you know, you, you pick and choose. I mean, you can't write a book about all human relations with animals. I mean, this is one of the central questions of mm -hmm. the human experience is our relationship with animals and nature. So you have to pick and choose. But I would say that, you know, I really, I took some jabs at some organizations in this. I mean, I took, I took aim at the National Rifle Association, frankly, because it's been standing in the way of some very legitimate reforms like outlawing pigeon shooting in Pennsylvania or stopping bear baiting. And I wanted to make sure I had all the facts right on there. So I did some research on that, like the issue of lead shot, for instance. You know, if a hunter is shooting waterfowl, it's no longer permissible to use lead shot. It was banned in the mid-1980s. But for many other species, lead shot is permitted. And when it's discharged, it you know, pollutes the environment, if you will. And sometimes animals shot by hunters are filled with lead and they, you know, aren't, aren't retrieved by the hunter. They're wounded and they go off. And then carrion feeding birds like California condors, they may feed on the carcass of the animal not retrieved. So I did a lot of research on this whole lead shot issue and figuring out kind of what the toxicity of the, of the lead was and what the frequency of death was, the causes. So it just you know, led me into the scientific literature in many ways. And it was really compelling, powerful information, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to include it in the book. Okay. Well, I think you've got something that you were going to read to sort of set up sure. some aspects of that. So please go ahead. Yes. Well, this is from the preface. You know, I, I, I wrote a preface and then an introduction, and I, I hit a lot of the big issues in the book. And I think this just two paragraphs kind of sets up some of my thinking on the book. As harsh as nature is for animals, cruelty comes only from human hands. We are the creature of conscience, aware of the wrongs we do, and fully capable of making things right. Our best instincts will always tend in that direction because a bond with animals is built into every one of us. That bond of kinship and fellow feeling has been with us for the entire arc of human experience, from our first barefoot steps on the planet, through the era of domestication of animals, and into the modern age. For all that sets humanity apart, Animals remain our companions in creation, to borrow a phrase from Pope Benedict XVI, bound up with us in the story of life on earth. Every act of callousness toward an animal is a betrayal of that bond. In every act of kindness, we keep faith with the bond. And broadly speaking, the whole mission of the animal welfare cause is to repair the bond for their sake and for our own. In our day, there are stresses and fractures of the human-animal bond, and some forces at work would sever it once and for all. They pull us in the wrong direction and away from the decent and honorable code that makes us care for creatures who are entirely at our mercy. Especially within the last 200 years, we've come to apply an industrial mindset to the use of animals, too often viewing them as if they were nothing but articles of commerce and the raw material of science, agriculture, and wildlife management. Here, as in other pursuits, human ingenuity has a way of outrunning human conscience. And some things we do only because we can forgetting to ask whether we should. So I think, Doug, that mm -hmm. kind of frames the issue in talking about this bond, which kind of gives us a head start in doing the right thing for animals. But then there's still, in our society, where we have so many manifestations of human love and affection and appreciation for animals, we also have so much cruelty. And I say that, you know, cruelty only comes from human hands. I mean, we're the ones who do it. There's suffering in nature. I mean, animals are at risk in wild settings, and of course, all living organisms die. So it's not as if, you know, I'm saying that we've got to have eternal life for all creatures. I'm saying that we must really take a serious moral look 
at our conduct that causes misery and suffering and cruelty to other creatures. And that I think we can really honor this bond and find a way to live our lives, maintain a robust economy, a high quality of life, but not leave a trail of animal victims in the process. And you outline some of that in the book uh, at the end, talking about um, sort of scientific things that have changed the ways that animals are treated. Um, I'd like to go back to one of the things that you mentioned in there. That you say, oh, cruelty only comes at animal hands, uh, at human hands, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and one of the chapters in this book uh, is probably your most controversial chapter. It's a controversial relationship with Michael Vick. Yes. And um, you talk about meeting him in prison and the belief you have that he could be a positive force within the animal rights community. Tell me about writing this section. You know, did you keep notes on your interaction with him? Do you have to rely on memory? How did you reconstruct this and, and walk yourself through it? Sure. Well, there's a let me let me set it up a little bit because it's got a lot of backstory to it. <laughs> uh, of course, the Humane Society of the United States is as tough as any organization can be on dogfighting. I mean, we have the most dedicated unit focused on dogfighting crimes and cockfighting. And I actually helped to write the 2002 federal law under which Michael Vick was prosecuted. There's another federal statute that was also invoked to prosecute him but it was the federal animal fighting law that we were responsible for that led to um, his prosecution. So we wanted him prosecuted, no persons above the law. We wanted to make sure that um, you know, the federal prosecutors took this matter seriously and they, they did very, very uh, well in advancing this case. We demanded that Vic be ousted from the NFL and that his sponsors drop him. So we were not the least bit soft in any way in Michael Vick. Mm -hmm. As his prison term was about to end, he reached out to me through one of his intermediaries and said he wanted to get involved in our anti-dogfighting work, which, again, is the most developed work in the field. I decided, no, the guy's too radioactive, too difficult. You know, his, we were so at odds with him that it was just too big a leap. But then I had this nagging feeling that what are we really about at the Humane Society? We're really about change. We're about people who do the wrong thing moving into a better place. And we don't just take the easy cases, we take the tough cases. I mean, we don't just want to be preaching the choir to a suburban housewife who is already very much in alignment with the philosophy of the Humane Society of the United States. We've got to take people who are, who are really in a bad state and try to help them get to a better place. The second piece is, you know, I knew from our work against dogfighting that the biggest growth area for dogfighting was urban-based dogfighting, what we call street fighting, young, African-American kids often getting pit bulls for the wrong reasons and staging fights in back alleys and abandoned buildings and even on the street, hence the name street fighting. And I thought, who better to offer these kids a cautionary tale about this than, than Michael Vick? You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Wayne Paselli, CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. You can learn more about Wayne and his new book, The Bond, via the links at www.writerstalk.org. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University and The Ohio Channel, where you can watch videos of some of our interviews at www.ohiochannel.org. Now back to my discussion with Wayne Paselli and his controversial relationship with NFL quarterback Michael Vick. After a lot of soul searching, a lot of reflection, I agreed to meet him. I flew up to Leavenworth Penitentiary with his lawyer 
And I sat down with him and had a, a one-hour courtyard conversation with him, which I recount in right. the uh, opening of the fourth chapter. I took notes uh, right after the conversation ended. I didn't record it, uh, but I took notes immediately afterwards, and I met with Vic a second time. After he got out of jail, he was in home confinement for three months. I went to his home in Hampton Roads, Virginia, and sat with him for a few hours and really kind of probed what happened in his life and when he started. He told me he started dog hunting when he was seven years old and all the kids were engaged in dog fighting. They were fighting dogs during the day and chasing cats and killing them with pit bulls at night. And how he just continued to do it as he got older. And even when he was in college, when he was at, at Virginia Tech, you know, breaking records and making a name for himself, he was still doing it. And even when he was in Atlanta Falcon, every week, his one day off, he would fly down to Virginia and fight dogs. So it was staggering to me that he did it, but he was transparent with me, and he said he wanted to make a long-term commitment to help us with our anti-dog fighting work, and we've been doing it since. So it was, a, uh, it was a tough thing to begin with for me to work with Michael Vick. A lot of our supporters didn't understand it, but I would do it again. I mean, it's actually exactly the way you want something to play out. A man commits terrible crimes. He's prosecuted for them under the laws that we help write, he serves a, a meaningful sentence in jail. When he's coming out of jail, he wants to now turn around mm -hmm. and he wants to help address the societal problem that he was caught up in. And he wants to reach others in part of a broader campaign to turn the problem around. So, I mean, to me, that's exactly the way we want our penal system to work. And I felt that it was important for me to recount that story because it was such a conflicted thing for me to go through. Right. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I felt as I was reading it is that, I mean, I could sense some of the conflict you had with it. I also sense that there's, you know, the uh, a moment in which you say, as you said, you can use this as a, a moment of this person has redemption, this person has changed. And then there's that sort of cynical moment that you said, well, the guy is also getting back into yeah. um, football. And, you know, are there other high profile, and I, don't, I can't think of any, that would uh, fit this mold as well. I mean, are there people, would it, does it just mean somebody who's high profile would be able to go through the process that you've described? I mean, is there some other, uh, you know, if I yeah. were a pit bull fighter, sure. you know, would I get this sort of redemption? Well, let me just say in general that, that the humane movement is a movement full of, of sinners. I mean, you know, animal use is caught up in our daily lives. I mean, we're eating meat. We're wearing clothing that may come from, you know, animals, whether it's exotic skins or fur. You know, many people have hunted throughout their life, you know, maybe even uh, engaged in trapping. I mean, we are all caught up in this world where we have all these mixed messages about animals where we say we love them. We say we're against cruelty, yet we have factory farming and we have, you know, trophy hunting and we have trapping for fur and there's animal testing all around us, so none of us is perfect. And I say, you know, my, some of my own conduct, you know, when I was a kid, I'm not, you know, proud about it, I wasn't fully informed, I didn't make all the right decisions. So some of the most powerful voices in our field are ex-ranchers who are kind of industrial-style agricultural operators who've now shown a new way. There, uh, I have a friend who's an ex-primate researcher. He was doing terrible things to primates in laboratory settings, and now he's one of the best advocates for helping these animals and you know, calling wasteful, you know, inhumane research exactly that. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like our whole movement is populated, and that was very instructive to me. I mean, I didn't feel like I was breaking new ground with this. I mean, I was the only you know, leader of one of the major groups who was willing to work with Vic at the mm -hmm. time, but um, I'm very uh, cognizant that 
we want to have people moving in the right direction. Our movement is full of those people. Okay. You know, I think the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about this book, and for someone like you to write the book, is that you do tread in some ways, you, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, a line at which you're taking aim at certain groups like the NRA and, and other groups that you're, you know, you're not taking. I was actually sort of surprised when you mentioned Sarah Palin and um, the wolves that uh, hunting that you didn't <laughs> sort of condemn her any further. And the question I have on that is, what is your, you, you seem to be establishing a fairly neutral political tone or trying to be politically neutral for the the good of the organization. And I'm wondering how difficult that was to for you to write about if you set aside personal feelings uh, and just said, okay, there, because you talk about, hey, there are some people who are uh, Republicans who are good allies, there's some people who are Democrats. Not difficult at all. You know, I have um, friends in Congress and in many state legislatures on both sides of the aisle, and we value them greatly. I consider this issue being decent to animals a universal value. I mean, opposition to cruelty is something that everyone should hold. It would be the worst thing imaginable for it to be the province of one political party mm -hmm. and to be a, a, a football that's, you know, that's contested by these two parties. So mm -hmm. I uh, am studiously nonpartisan in our work, and I'll criticize Sarah Palin for promoting aerial wolf gunning, and I'll criticize a Democrat on the Ag Committee like former U.S. Representative Charlie Stenholm from Texas for, you know, defending you know, terrible practices like downer cows in the food supply really go after uh, Congressman Stenholm for, you know, getting on the floor and saying no sick animal could ever get into the food supply when we were trying to pass legislation in Congress to require the humane euthanasia of animals too sick or injured to walk at slaughter plants. I mean, these animals are down, ill, or severely injured, and these folks are trying to get them into the slaughterhouse to feed ground beef to our kids. I mean, I just found that unconscionable, and I, I detail it in my chapter about factory farming. Right. And I had to look up downer cow, by the way, which yes. I thought it's, it's sort of, uh, in a sort of sick way, a humorously named, because this is it's down, um, but it's almost, oh, that's too bad. It's a downer cow. Right, exactly. And I thought, what yes. an odd term to describe it. It is. I had to look it up myself, you know, <laughs> way back when, when I first heard it. But it literally means the animal is down on the ground and can't get up. And then there's downed cows that can apparently get back up, but the downer cows are the ones that well, are Well, I think they're, they're interchangeable. I mean, okay. so, sometimes uh, the animals are non-ambulatory, as they say. They, they can't walk. What I documented was that an investigation that we did at a Southern California slaughter plant, they were tormenting these downer cows. They were, they were ramming them with forklifts and they were, they were using a hot shot on their eyes and their genital areas. They even put water hoses in their mouth to cause them such distress that they actually would get up because they were trying to avoid their tormentors and they would then kind of move them toward the slaughter area to, to kill them because it was so difficult to move these large cows when they couldn't walk on their own. Okay. What part of this book did you find the most challenging to write? What part did you oh boy. the most difficulty? You know, I think that the first part, the first chapter of the book um, was, was very difficult because I kind of had to frame the broader issue of our bond with animals. Uh, chapter one is called The Ties That Bond, and I talk about the biochemistry of the bond, pet keeping through the ages, so I kind of had to take a, an historical look at how we've viewed animals over time. The rise of domestication, which is one of the transformative events in the human experience. I mean, nothing changed human culture and experience more than animal domestication. Animal sacrifice I looked at even as a way to represent the bond. I mean, only certain animals were sacrificed. They had to be well cared for. 
only uh, religious leaders could sacrifice mm -hmm. the animal. So I even said in that ritual, which we now think of as antithetical to any animal welfare sensibility, there was actually some sort of bond built into it. Then I talked about the, the emergence of the, of the modern era and the rise of the humane movement, um, the, the animal welfare and the great republic of the future, which is a, a comment from Henry Salt. Um, which is a beautiful quote that I, that I make. So I think that chapter, in some ways, because it was such an enormous arc of, uh, of, of experience. And I also talked about what the underlying basis for a connection with animals is. It's not some weepy sentimentalism that I have or others have. It's really there's something built into us that connects us to other living beings. It's why we have two-thirds of American households with pets why we love wildlife, why we have Animal Planet on television. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're drawn to other creatures. And I didn't want to just say, okay, we're drawn to them. I wanted to explain what underlies it. And I think in that chapter, I do my, uh, my best in providing a, a survey of what's going on here. Okay. Who do you see as the audience for your book? Who do you really want or expect to buy? You know, really, I, I, I have multiple audiences. I mean, clearly, you know, this is something that I wrote to deepen understanding about animal protection issues, about the history of our relationship with animals, and to point a way forward for us in society. So obviously our members, I thought, would be very interested in it, but it's definitely aimed at the mainstream of American culture. And I'd actually hoped that many people within animal use industries that sometimes we have you know, very good relations, sometimes not so good relations, would read it as well as a very coherent, you know, logical treatment of how we can get beyond some of these problems. You know, I don't want to be stuck in the mud on this issue. I don't want just, you know, warfare on the tough issues here. I mean, you've got some easy issues like dog fighting and about proper pet care, but you have tougher issues like factory farming. I mean, how do we produce food, mm -hmm. you know, in a society where we have 310 million people in America and 7 billion worldwide, and those numbers are both going to grow. How do we do that without confining animals and mutilating them and causing them harm on these factory farms? So, you know, I've actually, in Ohio, we've, we've really forged some really important relationships with the leaders of Ohio's agriculture community. And I am so proud about that. And I'm so appreciative of the dialogue that we're having. And I want together us to figure out these solutions. I don't want to say, okay, you do it or I do it. I want to say, you know, together, let's figure it out so we can all win. I mean, I want farmers to win, I want uh, our members to win, I want all of society to win. I want to have a robust economy and also to be good to animals. Okay. That's, that's, that's the future for us, the humane economy, which is the last chapter. Okay, I was gonna say, and you can see that um, you have a, a vision of that and a vision that you're, you're offering in the book. And uh, if you've got two minutes, What's that vision? How do you explain it? Well, it really is about the humane economy. You know, it's, it's really not so much about animal rights, which I don't really advocate for. I advocate for human responsibility. I mean, it's really more about us than it is about them. You have to understand a basic framework with animals that they feel pain, they suffer, they have a heartbeat, they breathe air, they want to live. And I think we use the genius and creativity and innovation of the human mind to figure out this set of problems that past necessities, like wearing a fur coat, are today's minor conveniences for which we have alternatives. Let's find the alternatives so we can live a good life and also give the animals a good life too. Mm -hmm. And that's the humane economy. You know, a lot of people talked about the green economy, having an economy that's built around environmental sustainability. Well, this is about 
having a strong economy and not causing harm to animals, especially not in these severe extreme ways. Are there, could you name some specific places where you feel like the humane economy has really been achieved or is a much greater achievement? I mean, we have a lot of factory farms in Ohio. Or, yes. uh, are there places that have taken pla are the place of these that are doing what you're saying? Well, the, the quintessential example which I invoke in the book is, is whaling, you know, to move from whaling to whale watching. You know, we were the biggest whaling nation in the world. Now we're the biggest whale watching nation. We're opponents of whaling and international fora. But I talk about seals and killing seals. You know, I've gone up to the ice flows of Canada and seen the beauty of these seals and this nursery of the north with these harp seals and hooded seals. And, you know, I think you could monetize that, make millions of dollars killing the seals, mm -hmm. now generate so little revenue because no one wants these seal pelts. So that's the old economy kind of stubbornly clinging to custom and tradition, when in reality we have a new economy to build it. But humane, sustainable agriculture, I mean, we're really excited about working with farmers not only in Ohio, but all across the country, to build an agricultural model that's productive, that produces safe food, but that's also humane for the animals. Okay, and we will hope that Ohio will be able to contribute to that and be in the forefront of <clears throat> that as the uh, movement moves forward. And it has been. It's been a really great relationship and the Ohio Livestock Care Standards Board, we're working closely with it, and we are really excited to see progress. Great. Well, Wayne Paselli, the president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States, thank you for being here on Writer's Talk. Doug, thank you so much. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Wayne Paselli, CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. For more information about him, visit www.writerstalk.org. Join us next time for Tori Atkinson and Alex Strife, student editors of Ohio State University's creative writing magazine, The Journal. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. Keep writing.